All right, why don't we go ahead and take out our Bibles? We are not going to have them on the screen today. We're going to be looking in the actual physical Bibles. If you don't have one, there should be one under the seat in front of you. We are in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 that's in the New Testament if you need help getting there in the Bible's under the seat in front of you It's page 976. That'll get you there a lot faster 976 We're taking a break from our being Jesus series for one week For whatever reason God orchestrated out a long time ago that this weekend would be specific to give you a message and I believe this is the message that he wants to give you I entitled it deeply broken and deeply fixed and I believe that it is something that every one of us need to hear either we know someone or it's actually us that God is talking to what I'm going to try to do is do what a surgeon does right here's what a surgeon does they said you have a problem you went great then the surgeon says I'm going to cut it out great now If the surgeon's good, he uses a scalpel. If he's bad, he uses a chainsaw, right? So I'm hoping to use a scalpel with you today and only excise out what needs to be without dumping a bunch of other garbage on you. So I'm going to try to cut as neatly as I can. To some of you, it will feel like a chainsaw. So let me give you a warning. I'm going to begin by sharing with you what I believe is a concern upon God's heart and certainly upon the heart of us in leadership about our current culture and then i'm going to spend the rest of the time giving you god's solution to that challenge if you walk out in the middle of this message you're going to be super depressed (laughs) you got to go all the way through and get to the other side of it other and when you leave here you should be feeling absolutely built up by the lord on top of the world ready to go out there and seriously advance the kingdom of god but we got to get through the rough stuff first all right here's where it all came from this last week as a staff we've been going through and it takes months to do it but we've been going through what we've done every number of years and it's a recapturing of the vision of bridgeway and saying are we clearly articulating that and do all of us know where we fit into the bigger picture So that would be, for example, we get it. We're all here to worship God, glorify God, make disciples. Every church is supposed to do that. How are we supposed to uniquely do that here? Because every church is different. So we were going through and saying, all right, what we asked ourselves three questions. The first question is, what unique situation has God placed us in? Who do we minister to? Who comes to this church? Who do we rub shoulders with? Who do we influence? Because we'd love to meet everybody, but to be truthful with you, there's a certain segment of our society that tends to be the majority in our demographics. So we were asking, what unique situation has God placed us in? Number two is, what unique resources has he put in this church? To meet that need in other words, what kind of people do we have in church? God uses people as resources Therefore we're looking around going who did God bring in? I mean you're here. So what are we supposed to do? I mean if if you're involved and you're engaged and you're part of leadership and you're helping us out What are we gonna do? We had to assess that The third thing was what unique passion? Gets us fired up at bridgeway that will drive the fire Of what we're gonna do about it 
For example, we were determining those. A couple things we're fired up about. We're really into the Bible. We're very into scripture. That's a big deal to us, right? Another thing is that we're really intense about true life transformation. We're not, we're not as interested in putting on plastic faces or making a change. We're not interested. We're interested in real God overhaul. That makes us get all excited. And so if you want to know what makes the staff excited around here, it's, it's man, God's power. It's, it's seeing real life change. That kind of stuff is a big deal to us. So while we're wrapping all that stuff and kind of answering questions, we had to answer the what's wrong with our culture question. I went off in my little group and a bunch of us, there's about 15 staff members. We broke into teams and we were starting to go through that and God laid it super heavy on my heart that what the critical issue behind all of this is, is identity. And I remember the last time we talked about it, I wrote on my sheet when I was in a staff meeting, identity is the critical issue. I want to address the issue of identity with you today. And I'm going to begin by talking about what's wrong. Here's what we came up with. We came up with a number of things in our society that are a challenge. The first one I would call relative affluence. Relative affluence. What do I mean by that? I mean that by world standards, we are a wealthy people. Okay? This is the bottom line. We do not know poverty... Like the rest of the world places no poverty. We do not live in a society where children are lying in the gutter to die with distended stomachs that have not eaten for weeks. We we don't have that in our particular culture. Now it exists, but it's not in our particular view. But even among Americans, we are still by and large a middle class to upper middle class demographic, which means we're even wealthy in American standards. So you go, well, why didn't you just say affluence? Why'd you say relative affluence? Because here's the reality. Most of us are in debt and living paycheck to paycheck. That's the reality. It doesn't matter how much money you make a year. And here's what's so embarrassing. If an outsider looked at what you make a year and you dare say you have money problems, they will probably harm you. <laughs> because they're going, how in the world do you have money problems? Seriously, you make such and such a year. Shouldn't you, of all people, be completely chill and relaxed knowing that God is taking care of you and yet you're not? As a matter of fact, it doesn't matter how much you make a year. You're carrying the same stress load as if you made one fourth of that. We all tend to have this debt. We're living above our means and we are not handling our money well. We're living paycheck to paycheck. And what this relative affluence does is it creates in us a couple problems. Number one is it creates options that lead to consumerism. Okay, consumerism is a massive issue in our society. And here's where it all comes from. It comes from the idea that since you have money at all, you tend to go to stores to buy things. When you go to a store, here's what you're going to find out. Stores want your sale so badly, they will cater to you. When you walk in the front door, their job is to make sure you get everything you want. If they do not have it in stock, they will order it. If they cannot order it, they'll have it manufactured. 
They want your business because if they do not cater to you immediately, you will take your business elsewhere. Over the last decade or so, we all know the mantra that someone is always right. Who is that? The customer is always right. So we have been trained to be consumers that are catered to. Some of us can afford to go to restaurants to eat, right? I don't care if that restaurant is Burger King. We can go to a restaurant to get food. And when you walk in the restaurant, they will alter their menu for you. Now, when I was growing up, what was on the menu was on the menu. I didn't know you could just start making stuff up. But now, the older I get, I'm hanging out with people that would dare to order away from the menu. I find that a great violation. I don't understand. The rule is clear. If they said they have tacos, I don't care if you want a tostada. It's not on the menu. Don't order it. But apparently, all my friends disagree with me. As a matter of fact, they have violated one of the great codes of America, which is they would dare to alter In-N-Out Burger's menu. Okay, now In-N-Out Burger is special in the sense that it is supposed to be a limited menu already. It's supposed to force you to buy something they've already made. But no, my friends will come in there and they want this animal style. Animal style is not written anywhere on the menu. And then so-and-so has got to come in and rip the buns off the burger and put lettuce wrap on the outside. That's not even a burger. Don't touch the menu. But nobody agrees with me. So everyone is continuing to make their own thing. And literally, you are catered to everywhere you go. That is one thing on the issue of consumables. It's quite another when it comes into relationships and God. Yeah? Here's the problem with bringing it into relationships. When you no longer cater to me and shape around my world and bring benefit to me, I'm done with you. That's the problem. We are taught to consume everything. We consume relationships. And when they're no longer beneficial, we delete relationships. And that's a problem. When you start looking at God as a consumable, you begin to use phrases like, God, you're not answering my request when I want and how I want. You are no longer useful to me. And you back off from God. There's a great danger there. The other thing that relative affluence does is it makes us busier. Why? Options. The more options you have, the more options you feel you need to take advantage of. You can afford to go to places like malls. In a mall, you're bombarded with advertising that tells you you need to be doing more or you're failing. You can afford a TV. On TV, you're bombarded with advertising that tells you you need to be doing more or you're a failure. We're buying all this and we're absorbed in it and we're allowing it to drive what we do. This busyness is making us merely tolerate life and not live life. And it begins to wreck a lot of things that matter to us. Let me ask you a quick question. I want you to think of the poorest neighborhood in the greater Sacramento area. If we were to take off right now or any day this week, and we drove through that neighborhood, what would you see? I can venture to say that we will see most of the people that live there. They will be hanging out. Now, I want you to think of the wealthiest neighborhood you know. What's going to happen if we go during this week and we go and look in that neighborhood? What are we going to see? Nobody. Ghost town. Why? They're out making the money in order to afford to live there. Right? Not only that, but they have so many options 
There's no point in being at home. There's no point in being around your neighbors. There's no point in knowing your neighbors. Relative affluence and the debt and everything else weighs very heavy on us. And we feel like we need to stuff ourselves as quickly as possible. A second issue that we found was called projected self-reliance. Projected self-reliance. What it means is people around us don't seem to have any needs. Let me tell you this. I said, all right, here's what I want everyone to do. When you leave here, I want you to go share the gospel with your neighbor on the right of your house. Most of you would balk at that because you immediately scan through and go, they don't need God. They don't want God. They don't have any needs at all. I mean, you go over and you talk to them. They're like, no, I'm good. Well, you know what? You actually have a sin problem. No, I don't. Okay. Well, actually, you know what you really, when you're having a hard time in life, who do you go to? I don't know. I'm fine. Really? Everything's fine. That projected self-reliance makes it look like nobody has any needs. Why are we doing that? Do people really have needs? Yeah, actually they do. Then what are they doing? They're burying their insecurity. You either bury it because you know you want to bury it or you bury it because you don't know how to deal with it. When we bury self-rejection, we have to hide behind masks. You have to keep up appearances. I'll tell you this, one of the greatest fears on all of us is embarrassment. You would be horrified to know that your coworkers are aware you are not keeping up as much as you appear that you're keeping up at work. You'd be horrified to know that all the other students around you, that you're actually failing at some of your classes and you took way more than you should have. You'd be afraid to know that your neighbors are aware that you can't afford the cars that you're pulling into your driveway every day. And that your house payment is way more than it ever should have been. We are so scared of being embarrassed that we will do radical masking to cover it. We have to project that we are okay. Everyone knows the problem with masks. Let me just remind you. Here's the problem with wearing a mask. You can't feel love through a mask. The person will love the mask. And then if you ever remove it, they have to get to know you all over again. And they may or may not reject you. We do not want to be rejected. So we keep the mask on, but we can't feel any of the love. We know we're living a lie. We know that that person is only loving something that is fake about us, but we can't dare remove it. So we continue to leave it on and we continue to be lonely and we continue to feel unloved and it eats away at our soul. Know that the whole idea of mask is projecting out something that is not true of us and we can't be honest and vulnerable. As a matter of fact, because of all this issue, every once in a while we'll snap and we'll admit we have a problem. But because of our busyness, we will not commit to the solution. So if you cannot give me a solution in five minutes or less, I have zero interest in talking to you. I will not bring up my need unless you can fix it now. You understand the problem with that? Nothing's getting fixed. Because we're so concerned about our image, our life is driven by performance and competition. It's all about keeping up with everybody else. But what if you're keeping up with a neighbor who's in debt? And then you get in debt to keep up with them. Is that mutually beneficial? Let's say your life is too busy, but you've been keeping up with someone else's life who's unhealthy and too busy. Is that mutually beneficial? We seem to be keeping up with the wrong thing. We're too focused on competition. And it's not that we're prideful necessarily, although that's an issue. It's that we're scared out of our minds that we're falling behind. Something's wrong with us. The other thing that I found was that 
the young families. We have a lot of young families at Bridgeway. And it's intriguing that young families, or I should say families with young kids, our schedules are largely designed and dominated by our children's schedules. You got to take so-and-so to wrestling, then you got soccer, and then there's volleyball, and then there's basketball, and then you got this, and you got that, and you got uh, Cub Scouts or uh, Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts, right? Same thing. You always got something going on. And so anytime anyone talks to you, you're too busy. You got different places to take your kids. Now, some of that's legit. Here's why. We do not live in walkable communities. Our kids can't walk to where they need to go. And number two, we do not feel that there is a safe enough society where we can just let them wander and go get their exercise unattended. Hey, just go somewhere and just run around and do whatever you want. We don't feel comfortable in that. So we don't allow our kids to do that. Therefore, they're highly reliant on PE at school, which is not sufficient to handle the food that we feed them. Therefore, we have a whole problem about exercise. So we have to have them an extracurricular exercise that's watched over by an adult. And that's why we do a lot of these activities. I'm telling you, some of the reasons are legit. I get it. And if you were doing it because you loved your children, I would applaud you. But what I find is that most of us are doing it because that's what we think good parents should do. And that's what we think our kids need to look like. That's where the problem happens. What I've found is that a lot of our kids in our youth programs do not feel that you're making those decisions at all based on love, that you're making the decisions based on appearances, and then they feel used. Ah, that's a tough one. Because we're so busy, we don't have any time to be salt and light in the world. We do not want to engage with our neighbor because we don't have time for our own friends, much less a messy new relationship. Really? Now I got to get to know you in order to present to you the gospel. I don't think I want to do that. So what we do is we go into Christian segregation. Let's pull away from everybody else and let's just do our own little thing. I don't have time to mess with anybody else. I don't think that's what Christ designed us for. So we get frustrated. The last thing that I'll mention is our technological, our technologically and culturally designed and driven shallowness. We're in constant communication on our phones, yeah? Try going to dinner with your family and see who pulls out their phone first. Is there such a thing as a meal without, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Is there such thing as a meal without a phone, right? Apparently you need that to digest, I guess, is what we, <laughs> what we need. We can't take a trip without taking out our phones. Our phones are dominating our lives. But here's what's interesting. Even on our chosen forms of communication, we choose Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and it goes on and on and on. You know what those all do? They allow you to control your own PR. Every one of them, you get to make your mask and portray it through. Here's what's interesting. When you meet someone after listening to their posts or reading their posts for a long time, when you meet them, they're very different than their posts. And you go, wow, there's a big disconnect. Why? Because they're selecting what you can see and what you can't see. And that's not real. It's another form of mask. And then we get afraid to actually interact because we are not as successful as we portray ourselves to be online. The information overload has allowed us not to have any filter. Go ahead and Google anything today and you're going to come up with 3,200,000 hits. How do I know that? Apparently there's 3 million answers to everything. Yeah. Okay. 
how in the world are you going to filter three million answers? Well, you're not. So you jump to the easiest. Our youth are being raised to believe that whatever comes up at the top of the search engine are the experts. What's the problem with that? You can pay a company to get to the top of the search engine response. It's actually advertising. It's not the experts. But our youth are being trained that if it's popular, it's got to be right. They're being trained that if everybody thinks so, they couldn't possibly be wrong. And so they jump on causes and they want to be on the right side of any given argument. And so they jump on whatever the celebrities doing or whatever the stars are doing, because then that allows them to feel valuable. Let me give you an example. Anybody ever heard of the ice bucket challenge? Okay. Those of you that do not know, this went viral. It was all over the place online. Here's what happens. Uh, a celebrity is, um, they wanted to raise money for a charity. And so they'll say, you can donate your money or you can do the ice bucket challenge, which is you pour freezing cold water of ice over your head. And then you're supposed to call out a couple other people like the old chain letter used to be. You call out some other people. They're supposed to either do the challenge or give money. And it's this kind of thing, right? Now I knew it was all over the place. As a matter of fact, every celebrity that wanted good PR showed up to do the ice bucket challenge. Here's what was horrifying to me. I never knew what it was for. I never even knew what the, what the issue was. I had to Google it yesterday. And when I Googled it, I was stunned to find out that it was ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And the reason why that's odd to me is because that is the one disease that is locked in my mind as being the worst. Because when I was growing up, my mom was a nurse and she cared for a woman with Lou Gehrig's disease. And as a child, I watched it progress until she died. As a matter of fact, I just lost our brother who sat right up here in his wheelchair this whole last year, David Fama, to ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Make no mistake, Lou Gehrig's disease is a huge deal to me, and I had no idea the ice bucket challenge had anything to do with it. When you start using causes to look good and for projections and to get people to like you, something's wrong. Is our society broken? Yes. Are we broken? Yes. How do we get out of this? That's what I'm going to tell you for the rest of our time. If you take notes, I want you to write down six words. It is this. I am a child of God. I am a child of God. I'm about to talk to everyone who has said at one time in their life, God, I don't want to do this anymore. I need you to rescue me. I need you to pull me out from who I am and what I have made myself to be. God, I don't want to be in charge anymore. I'm sorry for what I have done. I repent. I give back to you. I ask for your forgiveness. Please rescue me. Take away my heart of stone. Give me a heart of flesh and spirit. Make me brand new. I need to be born again, Lord. I cannot continue the way I am. Therefore, I hand my entire life over to you. I invite you to come into my world and begin to run the show. If you have ever said that, you are a child of God. And I need you to know your identity so you don't keep listening to the lies of the enemy and keep following through on this garbage. This stuff is damaging and it's got no place in our lives. I'm going to say the phrase our, we, us a lot because I'm right there with you. I get it. 
So let's look at what God has to say about who we are. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop right there. You cannot know who you are until you know who God is. Because he is your creator. He is your designer. And he designed you to be like him. If you don't know what he's like, you don't know what you were built to be. So who is God? Everyone's got an opinion. Everybody's got an idea. You listen to one preacher and he tells you that God is mean. You listen to another preacher, he tells you God is nice. Well, I'm tired of listening to people tell me what God is like. How about we let God define God? And he actually did that in Exodus chapter 34. Keep your finger in Ephesians and bounce back to the second book of the Bible. Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34, verse 5. It says this. Moses asked God, what are you like? What's your nature like? What's your character like? And God said, all right, I'll tell you. So it says, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed his name, the name of Yahweh. It says, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious let's stop right there what does it mean when god calls himself merciful and gracious it means that he gives a lot of people stuff they don't deserve that's what it means it means that he has more than enough it means he wants to lavish love on you and he knows full well we don't deserve it it means that he's all about giving people things they don't deserve It means he has more than enough in his storehouse for anything we may possibly need. And his heart is to bless. His heart is to care for. His heart is to love. That's what it means. It says that he said, I am merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Some of us just needed to hear that phrase right there. Do you realize God is not just angry at you every day? He is quite clear that you and I are morons. He is quite clear that we are failures. Yeah, that's not hard. It's not like it caught God off guard. God looks down and he says, I know that you are broken. I know what sin has done. However, I'm not angry at you about it. I get it. Let's fix stuff. It says that he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. You know what that word in Hebrew is? Kesed. It means loyal love. It means that when God says he loves you, he loves you. And guess what happens when you don't love him? He still loves you. It says that when he promises his love, he is faithful to carry out his love. It means that he's got such consistency that on your bad days, it does not affect him. God loves you and then loves you and then loves you. And God does not diminish. God does not shut down. God does not wane. God does not go out. God consistently loves with an intensity. He loves you just as much today as he loved you the day he saved you. That has not changed. You go, yeah, but I failed a bunch. That was never the reason why he loved you in the first place. It says this. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. What does that mean? It means our God is a forgiving God. It means God is not interested in saying, hey, man, you really screwed up. I don't even want to move on. Let's just hang out here and talk about it. It means that God is saying, can we deal with it, please? Can we deal with it and move forward? 
I do not want to sit in a dark room and allow Satan to just smash you over the head. Can we get up, brush off our pants, and start moving again? God wants to advance. God does not want to sit. God does not want to wallow. God does not want to look backwards. God does not want you to be frozen in guilt and shame. He said, I died for you that you might be free. And if I set you free, let's go somewhere. Let's go do something and not leave you as you are. Therefore... If God is like this, and he said, make no mistake, I hold people accountable. I'm not saying it's a free for all. Yeah, 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 there's no justice, whatever. I'm telling you, I will be a very clear judge, but I do not want to stand in condemnation. I want to move forward. And if I died for you, then you are free. It says right here back in Ephesians, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ is God, our father. The Bible says that he is. What that means is, is if he's a good dad, then he's not just a creator. He's a personal dad. That means he wants to know you personally. He wants to interact with you personally. That means what good dads do is they sit with you when you hurt yourselves and you cry. It means that he'll watch you while you sleep. It means that he celebrates stuff that you think is awesome. I have celebrated so many things my kids think is awesome and I don't even know what I'm celebrating. It's the idea that, man, it's awesome to you. Right on. Let's get all fired up about it. Yeah, let's do that, right? I'm the one who has a broken heart when my children are rejected at school. Why? Because I'm a dad. That's why. Therefore, our dad feels it when we get rejected down here. He's not distant. He's not away. He sees it. He gets it. He's living it right in there. And then it says that we have access to Jesus Christ, our Lord. That means Jesus. The name Jesus is a human name. It was a common name. It means that Jesus knows what we're going through. It means that you don't have a God that doesn't get it. You don't have a God that is kind of like, I don't know, that does stink down there. Sorry about that. He already lived it and he lived it worse than you did. He's gone through everything that you've gone through. He, when you cry out and say, God, do you understand betrayal? He can say, yeah, he had a name. His name's Judas. He was my buddy for three years and he turned on me. He knows what betrayal means. Jesus Christ, Christ means savior. That means God by definition is a savior. That means he is not interested in looking at you in the pit and talking about why you got in the pit. He's interested in getting you out of the pit. That's what saviors do. They save, they free They rescue. That's what he's good at. He is interested in rescuing you from whatever traps you. That means if it's addiction, he's interested in getting you out. If that's bad relationships, he's interested in getting them cleared up. If that is baggage from your past, he's interested in walking through and cleaning it up that you might be free. It says that his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. That means he's the master. If he's the master... Of you, he might be the master of me. If he's the master of us, maybe he's the master of something else. The Bible says that he was given the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. The Bible says that because of the cross, he was given authority over all principalities, powers, rulers, thrones, all of it. It says that he is the ruler of the universe. And if your Lord Savior is ruling the universe... You should have a lot more peace. It goes on to say in verse 4. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and blameless before him. 
What does that mean? It means we are blessed people. You are not just kind of blessed. You're over blessed. You know what this means? It means you're not a victim. For a child of God, no one is a victim. You are a victor. How do we know that? Because God is behind you. God is with you and God is advancing you. You are no longer a victim. You cannot have a victim mentality and be a child of God because you're overly blessed. I get the enemy has got you to focus on what you don't have. I get the enemy has got you to focus on what is broken in you. However, that is not the sum total of who you are. You are actually rescued. You have been transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Therefore, your future is bright and it's secure. Therefore, God's power is working in you the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen? You are not a victim. And there is nothing that stands against you that God cannot destroy. If it is an enemy, if God chooses to leave it in there as a thorn in the flesh, that's his decision. But as far as the inability, that's ridiculous. God can destroy anything that stands against his children. It goes on to say that we, our resources come from heaven. That means that whatever earth can dole out, heaven can match and beat. It means that whatever trouble you are in, there is more than enough resource to cover that from God. The Bible just said we were chosen by God. If we were chosen by him, it wasn't our idea in the first place. Think about how Abraham was selected to be the father of the Jewish people. He didn't even know God. I need you to understand that Abraham was not selected because he was awesome. Abraham was selected and was made awesome. It doesn't mean that you were selected because you performed great. That's why he saved you. And if you didn't select you because you performed great, then why are you still trying to keep his love by performance? Yeah? Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. It says that we were selected before the world began, before you and I were lovable. He loved us. Therefore, when on our days when we are unlovable, his love does not stop. It does not diminish. It says right there that we are holy. It doesn't say we will become holy. It says we are holy right now. Holy has two definitions. One is pure. One is set apart. We are holy. We are set apart. We have a special purpose. God saved us that we might do the works that were prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, you don't need to spend all your time trying to figure out the exact right ministry niche you need to get into to be successful. What you need to do is just carry out your calling. He has already made something special in you, through you, and for you. We don't need to be brilliant. We need to be obedient. That's different. It says right here that we are blameless. How do we know we are blameless? Because it says so. It doesn't matter what you feel about it. It means that Jesus Christ died on the cross and when he took away your sins and canceled the code, therefore God does not look upon your sin. He looks upon your healing. It means he looks upon your purity in Jesus Christ. It means that you do not have to feel rejected. And guess what happens when you sin? Can you run to your God for help? Absolutely. Why? Because he's not tracking on your sin. He's tracking on your healing. It goes on in verse 4. In love, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. It means that we are adopted. It means that we were picked, selected, and valued. It means that once we got adopted into the family, we were treated like his other kids, his bio kids. You know what his bio kid was? Jesus Christ. 
the one and only begotten son of the father. How did the father treat Jesus? How much did he equip him with? How much love did he lavish upon him? How much was his interest in him? That same interest, love, and resources is available to all God's kids. We may not be bio kids, but we were selected and adopted and became part of the family. It says that we are sons and daughters of God. Therefore, until we allow that identity to sink in, we're going to continue to try to perform as slaves, keep his interests like friends, earn a reward like employees, or resist him like enemies. The fact remains that we are his children. Children don't need to do those things because they're invited in with joy into the inner room of God's heart to be with him because he wants it that way. The Bible says that all this happened through Jesus Christ. If it happened through Jesus Christ and it was no work that you did, therefore you don't have to sweat it. The Bible says that it's according to his will. In other words, all this stuff is how he wants to do it. God is not forced to love you. God doesn't have to love you. God just likes you. You go, that's ridiculous. How in the world can God like me when I can't even do anything for him? Let me ask you this. When your newborn came out of your womb and all it did was cry, you called it beloved. Why? It did nothing for you. You had no guarantee that it was ever going to do anything for you. Right? But your love was still great. God's love for you is not dictated by your performance. I want to say it over and over and over again. It says that he has lavished us with grace and that it was for his praise. Do you understand that the more he transforms you, the more the angels are, wow. Do you understand that he looks good, shining through you? Guess what happens when you're weak and powerless? He looks even better. Guess what happens on your bad days? God gets glory. Guess what happens when you screw up and sin and ruin everything? The angels praise his name. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. According to the riches of his grace. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purposes. Which he set forth in Christ. As a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him. Things in heaven. And things on earth. What does that say? It says we are redeemed. The word redeemed means to be bought back. It means that there used to be a code, a law out there that called us guilty. And Jesus said, yeah, I paid for that and bought them back. Therefore, there is no guilty stamp on your forehead. The Bible says there's therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no more judgment. Understand this. There is no judgment for the children of God. There is discipline. Discipline means that as a good dad, he's not okay leaving you in the garbage that you're in. So yes, he will discipline you. But there is no judgment. God does not hate you. God does not, even though, even if you do dark and horrible things, he does not hate you. Because he knows that he has redeemed you. The Bible just said that we are forgiven. In other words... Everything was taken into consideration when Jesus took our full lives and died for them upon the cross. That means that we are free. Do you understand that he died for your worst day and you haven't even had your worst day yet? He died for that too. So we have peace. It says that we walk in grace every day. 
that means that no matter how much sin you can drum up, his grace is bigger. Paul the Apostle thought he was beyond saving because he killed Christians for a living. That's pretty bad. And yet Jesus Christ redeems him and makes him one of the greatest evangelists of all time. And we are continuing to read his words to this day. It says that he shared with us the mysteries of his will. God didn't have to tell us how much he loved us. He didn't have to tell us how it all ends. He didn't have to tell us what he was doing, but he did. Why? Because he loves us. And dads share secrets with their kids about the family. Let's close it out. Verse 11. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, speaking of us, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You know what that means? It means we are heirs. Heirs to what? To whatever Jesus gets. What does Jesus get? He gets to rule the world. Guess what we get to do? But advance the kingdom and rule the world along with him. That's what is for a child of God. It also just said that he's running the show. He's still in charge. He's still in control. So we don't need to try harder on ministry. We need to listen to his voice better. We don't need to force more of the gospel on people. But present it and let God be God. We don't need to argue people into the kingdom. But step out of the way when the message is delivered. It just said that he gives us truth. Not a relative truth, not a what's popular truth, but a true truth. It means that when you read the Bible accurately, you can take it to the bank because it's always right. It means you don't have to wonder what the world is really all about. He told you. And you can know it to be true. The Bible just said that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That matters to us in two primary ways. Number one, it means that God is in us and God never leaves himself behind. That means he will take us home. Whether he needs to grab you kicking and screaming or not, he will get you home. I understand you gave up on you. He didn't give up on you. He is still working on you. It says right here that in uh, the other reason, excuse me, the Holy Spirit matters is because God is more interested in finishing the work that he began in you than you are. The Holy Spirit is inside you to make you into the image of Jesus. Guess what's going to happen if tomorrow you do nothing about your spiritual growth? Guess what's going to happen? You're going to spiritually grow. How do we know this? Because the Holy Spirit is bigger than your resistance. He will agitate you. He will irritate you. He will make you into something. When you fail, he will use your failure as a learning tool. When you sin, he will spin that around for redemption. Understand, he can use anything and everything to get you to become like the son, Jesus Christ. Oh, he ain't done with you yet. The Bible just said that until we get there, we got a promise that he's still working on us. When you look in the mirror, you were looking at a work in progress. Don't ever judge a masterpiece until it's complete. I have done painting in my life. In my office are hanging two paintings that I painted with a friend of mine here at the church. I know this to be sure. When you finish a painting, it's the last stuff you put on it that makes it pop. It's the last stuff you put on it that makes the beauty come out. God isn't done with you. 
Stop looking at yourself and saying, I'm not a masterpiece. You're in process. Let God do what God does. Give him, the master artist, the pencil back, the brush back, the pen back, the charcoal back, whatever it is. Let him draw on you because he's good at what he does. And he is not done with you. Amen? Amen. I close with this affirmation. I'm going to tell you what you are not, and I'm going to tell you what you are. Your only responsibility is to see whether or not you can open the channel from here to here, whether or not you can make a canal between your brain of what you receive and your heart of what you own on what I'm about to say. If you can open your heart, open it now. You are not left alone. You are not a weak victim of this world. You are not worthless. You are not merely broken. You are not in competition with any other human being. You are not forgotten. You are not abandoned. You are not powerless to sin. You are not forced to be driven by your passions. You are not merely surviving this world. Let me tell you what you are. You are a child of God. You are loved. You are chosen. You are beautiful and lovely. You are moving from greater to greater. You are heading toward the great design that God intends for you. You are safe. You are helped. You are equipped. You are indwelt by the spirit of God. You are surrounded by his heavenly angels. You are powerful and mighty in his name. You are precious. You are invaluable. You are acceptable. You are forgiven. You are you are loved, you are loved, you are loved. I grow tired of the lies of the enemy. I grow tired of watching my friends wallow in pain, believing what he has said about them. Therefore, every once in a while, we need a reminder of who we are. As a matter of fact, I need messages like this in my back pocket on redial. I need to know about every couple months that I'm not insane. I need to remember every couple months that all the failure that I've done has not changed my identity in Christ. Therefore, God drew you here to hear this message so that you may know that you are loved. Do not allow your friends, your family, or anyone else in this world that is too immature to see it tell you any different. God gets to determine who you are. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray over you. Heavenly Father, I pray over my friends. Lord, I pray over my own mind. I need to be renewed. And I pray right now, God, that you would renew our minds, that you would change our thought pattern, that you would no longer allow us to be in that dark corner picked on by a bully. I pray, Lord, that you would empower us, that you would help us to rise up and stand against it and walk out and rebuke it in Jesus' name. I pray, God, that you would show us that you have made beauty out of garbage. And yes, we are weak. But that is not the sum total of us. Yes, we are sinful, but you have paid for that on the cross. That God, we may walk out of here with our head held high, knowing that we matter to you. And if we matter to you, then we matter. And so, God, I just pray that you would lock in our identity. You would take us out of the silliness of competition and the silly masks that we place over our face. Lord, let us be who we are and let us be loved for who we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful week.